0: Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone.
1: I'm
2: Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is divorce attorney James J. Sexton, author if you're in my if you're in my office, it's already too late. A divorce lawyer's guide to staying together. High powered, hard hitting divorce lawyer James Sexton has facilitated the demise of one thousand plus marriages and counting. A realist by profession and a romantic at heart, he has tapped into his years of experience helping people end their marriages to create the ultimate how not to need his services guide to help couples starting out find a path to success, and to help those who aren't too far gone get back on track. He's a graduate of Fordham Law School, New York University, and has been featured on Time.com, Good Morning America, and NPR. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, James.
0: Oh, thanks so much for having me, Catherine. It's great to be here.
2: Great to have you, and also, I just want to mention that you've also been described as a compassionate and dedicated advocate, a courtroom gunslinger, and the sociopath you want to want on your side. And yes. Have, well, having been divorced, I just want to say, uh, I think I'll choose the sociopath that I would want on my side. <laughs> Probably shouldn't well, say that. Well, you know, the but,
0: funny thing is, is in my profession, it's a very odd profession in the sense that it's one of the few professions where... Someone can come into your office and say, I heard you're a ruthless, horrible, you know, vicious person, and that's why I wanted you. It's, it's a very... Uh, strange uh, world I navigate, but the truth is, is, is you really want the right tool for the right task, and you know not every case requires the same thing. Some cases do require uh, someone who's near a sociopath and and who can uh, do what needs to be done without judgment or hesitation or or too much of a moral compass, and some cases really require someone who's being thoughtful and sensitive. and And the best divorce lawyers are are people who can kind of tap into each of those pieces of themselves and and uh, bring bring to bear what their client needs.
2: Yeah, and isn't it not only your client, but also who the your client is dealing with in terms of the other side of the divorce? How that sure, yeah,
0: hundred percent. And and you know, I I tell clients all the time, a divorce is like a table. You know, with four legs. There's there's me, there's my client, there's their spouse, and then their spouse's attorney. And like any table, if one leg is off, it doesn't matter how straight and nice the other three legs are. The table's going to fall down. So it takes one unreasonable person to make for an unreasonable divorce. Unfortunately
2: and also the the family itself does it makes a difference, I assume, also whether there are small children or grown children, or maybe or there's a lot of money or a lot of property or not so a lot all that stuff yeah. comes into play, yeah
0: a hundred percent, yeah, and it's you know I, I mean I think our our two professions you know very much have that in common that we're looking at a complex system that's filled with all kinds of sensitive receptors you know where where you know a, a minute change in one area can create in the long term that sort of butterfly effect where there's a long term uh, Uh, repercussions on minor changes. So, um, you know, really what you try to do in divorce law is the same thing you try to do, I think, when you're in the mental health professions, which is recognize and adapt. You know, recognize changes in your client, recognize changes in their system, recognize changes in their environment, in the case, in the other side, and then adapt. Adapt to those circumstances, adapt your strategy to those circumstances. That's why I tell clients all the time, it's not checkers, it's chess, where every move impacts every other potential move.
2: So, James, what was the attraction why you know you went to law school? you get out of law school? Yeah. What was the attraction for being a divorce attorney as opposed, you know,
0: i yeah. went to I went to to law school with the intention of becoming a divorce attorney. It was actually the only type of law I was interested in um, I, I originally wanted to be a therapist. I was a psychology undergraduate major, and then I got my master 's degree in cultural anthropology um, with a with a concentration in propaganda studies or persuasive speech. And I was very interested in the formation of people's attitudes. I was very interested in the idea of, you know, uh, working with people during transformative time in their life. But I was a debater in high school, and, and I was a, uh, you know, someone who's always very interested in, in persuasive speech and argument and extemporaneous speaking and advocacy. And I felt my skill set was very well suited to this area of law, and I felt that it also would gratify for me the, the, or scratch the itch in me that wanted to be in a helping profession, that wanted to be working directly with clients. I, I've joked all the time that if I had a choice between you know, being like a, a ditch digger or being a, a, an attorney who looks at contracts all day or who does real estate law, I would absolutely be a ditch digger because I, I, <laughs> it's not the practice of law that's interesting to me. It's the human element of advocacy that's interesting to me.
2: Yeah, and also it sounds like it's also the connectedness. You want to be connected to people. You don't want to be sitting in the sure. back room as you say, writing contracts or uh, Yeah Yeah, you know, doing real estate law. Okay, so the book and now the the yeah. title of the book is, is interesting. Um, yeah. not <laughs> uh, if we get well, it's true, if we get to your office then it's too late. So how do we not get to the office and how yeah, do I mean, we that's, get to that's the, the theme.
0: Yeah. That's the yeah. theme of the book. It's it's very funny, you know, it gets truncated sometimes when people are talking about it and I've done you know, a lot of discussions with, with, and interviews and some TV in the last couple of months, and um, very often people truncate the title and they just say, oh, his book, If You're in My Office, It's Already Too Late. And people laugh because it is kind of funny if you're in my office, it's already too late. But, you know, they leave out that second part, which is a divorce lawyer's guide to staying together. And people say to me, you know, oh, I I left the book laying around and my spouse saw it and said, oh my God, you know, what's the problem? Why are you reading a divorce lawyer's book? They don't really read the subtitle, which is it's really about connection and it's about maintaining connection. And the premise of the book in and Substance is that if by the time someone is sitting across from me in a divorce lawyer's office where divorce has become a potential reality, not just a passing thought that you might have, you know, when your spouse does something predictably boneheaded from time to time, you know, when, when you reach the point where you actually take action on this, um, that, is, that is maybe too late, that, that, that it may in fact be too far gone at that point. And so a lot of my book is about the fact that no single raindrop is responsible for the flood and that the seeds of future divorces are all being planted right now in these very benign or seemingly benign behaviors or, or actions or omissions that people are consciously or unconsciously engaged in that are causing slippage that ultimately will result in in one or one of them ending up in me or someone like me's office.
2: Yeah, and I want to talk about those specifically, but I but before we do you know, you mentioned when they are sitting in front of you, and it's it's gone to the point of just not talking about going to see the lawyer. But you are actually at the lawyer's office. Is there is that is there a point of no return, or do you often have uh, couples or individuals that you can convince, or or that uh, decide not to get divorced based on conversations yeah. with you?
0: I, I will say, I, I in twenty years of, of of practicing family law and divorce law, I think I have had maybe five or less cases where someone came to me, had a consultation, I discussed with them options and just gave them the idea of, okay, here's what your rights and obligations could potentially be. And then they left and they never came back. And as far as I know, they lived happily ever after or unhappily ever after, but remained married. Usually what would happen is a person would say, okay, I'm going to take this information and ponder it. And sometimes I don't see them for three months. Sometimes I don't see them for three years. I just had someone who came for a consult 10 years ago and then just came back. So they had an 8-year-old at the time. They did their first consult, and now they have an 18-year-old. And they said, okay, now it's time. Do you remember me? And I said, you know, unfortunately, after 10 years, no, I don't remember the details. Um, but, but, yeah, it, 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 in my experience, I mean, look, as a lawyer, I very much encourage people when they're in my office, if I sense that there's any trepidation, and that there's a possibility that some kind of of counseling either for themselves or for their partner or for themselves and their partner so to do couples counseling and individual counseling I'll always I, I'll always send people you know to mental health professionals and say look if you can reconcile your marriage, do so, you know, especially if you have children. But, but in any circumstances, if you can fix what's broken rather than throw away. We live in a culture where, okay, it's broken, just throw it away. I'm a believer in the fact of preservation. I'm a believer in the fact that if something can be repaired, repair it, you know. But um, I do think, unfortunately, from what I've seen, by the time people come to me, things have usually reached the point where they're that bad. I, and I think we know this in other fields. I mean, I think that you know, and again, in the mental health professions, if, if someone says, oh, I felt suicidal last week, or oh, I, I think sometimes I just wish I'd kill myself, what's the first thing you say? Okay, well, do you have a plan? You know, have you thought through how you would do that? Because once a person says, well, yes, I would do it this way, then that's critically important to a mental health professional, or even to law enforcement. They tell them if a person indicates that they're suicidal and they have a plan, that there's much more significance to that. Of course, any suicidal gesture, any suicidal ideation is serious. But when someone says, oh, yes, and here's my plan for doing it, it shows a level of commitment to that plan that has to be taken incredibly seriously. I think being in the office of a divorce lawyer is a very analogous situation in, in, in an emotional sense. It's, it's a real commitment to the unhappiness um, and to the, the desire to be released from it
2: and what are the major complaints what are the ma- the reasons say over these past 20 years obviously you've seen yeah. hundreds thousands of people and what yeah. would you say well let's talk about maybe the top 3 uh, it, they are more than complaints as as you say yeah. by the time they get to your office but what are they i mean i can yeah i mean yes, i don't think but,
0: they'll be surprising to anyone that the, the the number the, you know the three sort of you know the holy trinity you know of 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 um Uh, reasons people get divorced, the big reasons are infidelity, financial impropriety, and substance abuse issues. Those are really the three that we see all the time, um, either individually or in combination. Um, And so those are the three big things. Now, my book is really about the idea that those are the three presenting problems, but, but the underlying problems that led to those problems are what I'm most interested in. So, so the, how do people become disconnected physically to the point where they begin to seek you know, uh, you know uh, affairs outside the marriage? How do people become dishonest with their spouse to the point where they begin to engage in financial improprieties and lie about what's going on in the finances of the marriage? How do people become so detached from themselves or their own habits and routines, or how do people become detached from their spouse to the point where they can't discuss with them the substance abuse issues that are happening in the marriage? And, and that, to me, is what's the most interesting thing, because marriage is something where we all start out in the same place. We all start out committing to a connection and saying, we want to be connected in the following way. So everyone, in theory, has the same intention. I want to marry this person, and I want to stay connected to them. So we all are moving in the same direction. But either quickly or slowly, we start changing the plot, and we start moving in completely different directions. You know, in this increasingly curated society we live in, where everyone meant to do everything they're doing, and everything's you know, presented as if it were deliberate, no one can claim that they meant to get divorced. No one ever gets, you don't go to a wedding and the person says, oh, you know, I, I vow to have and hold until, you know, it doesn't work out or whatever. You know, it's, it's real. There's a lot of grand pronouncements at weddings about we're going to be together forever and for the rest of my life and then, you know, to have and hold, sickness and health, all those things. So the, the truth is, it's really, really interesting to me. Those, I'm going to interrupt
2: of, you because I have to ask you because you say that, we you know, we all start out that way. But do you yeah. think some of those vows in the context of how we live today may be antiquated? They may not, you know, t- live for the rest of my life to be with you for the next 50 years or 60 years. Is that realistic? And people live yeah. longer and they live healthier and yeah. they have more opportunities and more choices. And also I was going to yeah. ask you what the uh, definition. Yeah, it's a of great def- question. Yeah.
0: Okay, it's let's a great start question. That. I mean, I think there are more more uh, intelligent minds than mine at at work on that. I mean, I think Esther Perel's book *Mating in Captivity* is a phenomenal analysis of that, and in her more recent book uh, *Rethinking Infidelity*. Esther and I just appeared on a panel in New York City uh, together um, that you can find online, and 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 tried to address you know those kinds of questions about what is you know the future of marriage and what's the role of masculinity in it is what we specifically were talking about. But I, I do think that um, yeah, we're, we're we're definitely looking at a different landscape in as. People are not having children when they're 19 and then, you know, dying when they're in their late 40s, early 50s. People are staying married and, and living very long times and having, getting married later, sometimes having children later. So these are all changes on the landscape, and to suggest that they wouldn't have an impact on marriage as, as a functional, uh, uh, you know, technology um, is foolish. I, I think everything affects everything. But I would say that doing what I do for a living, it actually increases and seeing all the ways people fall apart and seeing all the ways that people cheat on each other and the infidelity and the craziness, it actually drives home to me how incredibly important connection is. And uh, the fact that the divorce rate is 53%, and yet we still assume people are going to get married and we still march down the aisle, you know, even second, third marriages. You know, there is no other thing. I mean, Toyota had a car that had like a 0. .0001 brake failure rate, and they recalled the entire fleet of cars. I mean, this is, a, this is a 53% of marriages end in divorce. If a friend came to you and said, I'm thinking about getting married, the, the thoughtful, intelligent, scientific response would be, are you crazy? Why would you do that? There's a 53% chance that's going to end in ruin. And that, by the way, is only the ones that get divorced. Let's say another 10%, 20% stay together for the children or because they don't want to give away half their, their stuff. And they're, they're so miserable. They, right, so you now get 63%, 73% failure rate. If I told you there's a 63% chance when you walk out the front door you're going to get hit in the head with a bowling ball, you would either not go outside or you would go out with a helmet on. So the suggestion that... that you know, we get, why do we keep doing this? It tells me, it creates something very optimistic and romantic in me, which is that we, we need and want connection and love, and we want to believe that this thing is possible. And I will say, and I, I, I say frequently to people that marriage is like the lottery. You are probably not going to win. But if you win... What you win is so good that it may be worth just buying a ticket. You know, my own parents were married for 52 years until my mother passed away, and they made each other's lives much better. They, they helped each other come to the fullness of who they were. You know, they were incredibly fortunate to have, to have had that connection. I have close friends who are deeply connected, and, and their marriage has been an incredible benefit to their lives. So the, the question becomes, if the, if the prize is potentially that good, why not? It's probably worth the risk. And and well, I even believe, as a divorce lawyer, to, it's worth the risk.
2: Well, do you have to do that for in the context of a marriage? Uh, yeah, I don't thinking, know.
0: Yeah. I mean, Great is question. that
2: maybe because, and I'm really thinking of myself, I was married for 20 years, and now I've been with my partner. He and I have been together for 30 years, but not right. married because there was right. really no reason to get married.
0: Right, exactly. right. Well, see, and that's the, that's the question I ask in the second chapter of the book, is I say, you know, what is the problem to which marriage is a solution? Because if you've tried to answer that question, you're a step ahead of most people who ever end up in my office. Most people just get married because it's something you do. You've been together for a certain amount of time, and you get married. And, and it's become accepted. And, you know, we, we don't know who discovered water, but it probably wasn't a fish. You know, when you're in something, you don't see it clearly. And so you don't realize that it has certain traits. And, and so I think what happens is, is people just get married because you're supposed to get married. And if you say to someone, oh, I've been dating this person for the last three years, and now we're going to get married, no one's surprised. But if you say, oh, I've been dating this person for three years, and we're never getting married, people go, oh, my God, why? Do you have intimacy issues? What's happening with you? So, it really is assumed that people get married. And I think it's a, a, a worthwhile assumption to question. But I also believe, and again, as a divorce lawyer, and I don't just say this to, to continue to have business, I, I really believe there is something there. I don't know that I understand it, I don't know that I relate to it in any way. Um, I was married for over 10 years um, and, and got divorced and had a very friendly divorce. Um, and, and, and have a wonderful co-parenting relationship with my ex-wife who's remarried to a wonderful guy who I get along very well with and who, when you meet him and meet me, you go, okay, if this guy's perfect for her, then I don't know how she was married to this other <laughs> one. Um, but the truth is, is, you know, there's a lot of people I love that I wouldn't want to be married to. And, and and I think that's true for all of us. We all have people in our lives we love, but we go, okay, you know, I, I love them, but I don't know that the technology of marriage would suit our relationship. And so I think you're right. There should be different different approaches to coupling. It doesn't have to be binary, where there's marriage or there's solitude. I, I don't think it's that way. I think there's a lot of varieties, and I think... I think, you know, time evolves, and I think we are seeing different approaches. It's, it's a very American problem as well. There are a lot of societies where it is acceptable for, for people, especially after divorce, to, you know, couple and to cohabitate, but to not, you know, not to, to, uh, not to marry. This idea of, like, sort of living together apart. You know, is is also something that's become increasingly popular with you know with senior citizen populations, where people are in relationships but not living together, but have a certain intimacy and companionship. So I don't think there's you know there's more than one path up the mountain.
2: Yeah, and I think a lot of European countries, and I'm thinking particularly in in the Netherlands, where I have uh, several uh-huh. friends, uh, they many of the couples never marry until it's really has to do with uh, children and finances. Exactly. So, you know, they've been exactly. married for ten. Yeah, and marriage. Yeah really traditionally has been to protect the children I mean that was the and
0: its original purpose was the preservation of wealth and land. I mean yeah. it was originally to bring together clans. It was to it was to it was to combine houses. You know is any of our Game of Thrones fans out there. It was the way to bring, you know, the Lannisters and the, you know, together. You know, it was a way to bring the the, 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 the um, kingdoms and unite kingdoms was by marriage. So and then it became, you the know, more of this idea of romantic love and romantic connection for the less. Uh, wealthy, for the non-royals, for the people who didn't have land preservation issues. It was about coupling and having children who would work the farm. And, you know, uh, uh, there were very defined sort of senses of, okay, we're going to survive against the elements together. We're going to together. And I'm sure even, I mean, look, if we probably look back at our prehistoric ancestors, you know, I'm sure that there was a function of, okay, you're going to tend the fire and feed the kid, and I'm going to go out and kill the elk and, and feed us. And it was a division of labor between men and women that also serve the purpose of of procreation, but, you know, it certainly has come far from that now. It has become something that is far more complex now, and I don't know that we've really talked about it as a culture. I don't know that when people get married that they ever sit down and say, hey, why are we doing this? What do we want from it? Other than these very general aphorisms, I want to be happy, I want to be in love, I want to be connected, which I talk about in the book are so general that I don't really know what that means. You know, if, if, if my romantic partner says to me, um, I really want to feel connected to you, well, what, what do you mean? Do you mean you want to spend more time together? You want me to put my phone away and give you my attention more? Do you mean you want to go on vacation with me? Do you mean you want to have more sex with me? Do you mean that you want me to be more emotionally open and intimate with you and, and share with you what's going on in my head? We can have very differing definitions of what it means to feel close to someone or connected to someone. And we don't talk about in marriage, what does it look like? What does happiness look like? And and it's very hard to get somewhere when you don't know what your destination was and you don't have a clear sense of what what the destination is.
2: Yeah, well, I think in, in social work vernacular, we call that operationalizing the terms. You know, I want to be happy, I want to be connected Let's put that into behavior. What does that actually mean? Which is what you're saying. I just want to kind of change the subject a little because you mentioned the three reasons why, or the three main general reasons why people end up getting divorced, infidelity, money, addiction, drugs. What about infidel- infidelity today? Is it, How is has it changed? I mean, is it, and I'm asking you as a lawyer, actually, uh, because, yeah. uh,
0: like, yeah, it, I mean, like, yeah, on the internet? It hasn't changed. I mean, it's still you know it, it, it was it was it was on you know the stone tablets uh, as one of the Ten Commandments for a reason. It's really two of the Ten Commandments actually. It's the only one that gets top billing and that it gets two. You're not supposed to covet your neighbor's wife, and you're not supposed to commit adultery. So you're not supposed to yeah. think about it, and you're not supposed to do it. And that's um, because but, people but,
2: thought about it all the time, and we're doing it all the time. That's why sure, you had to of have course, it. And, and still yeah.
0: are. Uh, you know, absolutely. the The original title that we we jokingly um, uh, had for the book was "Everyone Sleeping with Everyone." That was actually going to be the original title because we were. I was talking to my publisher. We were joking about like what is something that you know that every divorce lawyer knows. And I said, well, most divorce lawyers we, we're convinced that everyone's sleeping with everyone because we're just constantly seeing infidelity all the time. And, and is that on again? The, you know, the, but on your it's computer, changed that's changed in what terms I, of the technological. It's that's right. Yeah, of, yeah. It's changed in terms of the accessibility of it. I mean. You know, if you were to look at, at Stevie Wonder's uh, song from back in the 80s, Part-Time Lover, you know, uh, Call Up, Ring Once, Hang Up the Phone to Let Me Know You Made It Home, you know, a person in the current generation would laugh at that song because the, the complexity of infidelity... Uh, is outlined in that song of these little codes that he's going to use. Of, you know, he says, if there's some emergency, have a male friend ask for me you know, so his wife doesn't you know, know that it was a woman calling for him. Now people text. They message on Instagram. They message on on their email. They message on Facebook. They reconnect with their high school boyfriend or girlfriend on Facebook. And then they, you know, when their spouse says, oh, what are you doing over there on the other end of the couch on your phone? You go, oh, I'm looking up the Chinese restaurant that just opened up down the street. There's a chapter in my book called, um, uh, if I was going to invest an infidelity generating machine. It would be called Facebook, because Facebook really has, you know, facilitated adultery in a tremendous way, and it's it's really created in, in you know, a, a huge number of divorces. Um, that are caused by affairs. And again, I'm I'm not suggesting Facebook invented infidelity, but it certainly facilitated it in a modern way, and it's created a tremendous number of opportunities for people to be conversing with people that they probably have no business conversing with, or that if they're going to converse with them, they should make sure that their marriage is in a very, very strong place, because you hang around a barbershop long enough, you're eventually going to get a haircut. You know, alcoholics know don't hang out in a bar because you're eventually going to want to have a drink. You know, if you're hanging out in a space physically or electronically hanging out in a space where you are surrounded by curated images of ex-girlfriends and boyfriends and people around you looking their best because nobody puts up their worst pictures on Facebook. um, You're eventually going to be interested. They're going to catch you in a moment of loneliness where you might be interested in putting feelers out or chatting with someone you probably shouldn't be chatting with. And then you're off to the races.
2: Is is it considered infidelity if you are having an affair just on your computer? Like, if is that or well, if you're having phone sex with somebody other than your partner yeah. or how does that work?
0: Well, it's a very personal definition. I mean, I, I don't, you know, that has to be defined by each couple. But I don't know a lot of couples that have had that discussion. I mean, I don't know a lot of couples that have sat down and said, OK, if I have sex with someone, that's clearly infidelity. But if I was to have everything but actual sex with someone, is that still cheating? If I'm was to kiss someone else in a lingering way. Is that infidelity? Okay, if I was to have a very lingering hug and a short kiss, is that infidelity? You know, which would be more emotionally hurtful to you, to know that your husband or or, or partner kissed uh, another woman briefly on the lips or that he texted her... Three times a day for the last five months, talking about his day, what he's doing, what's she up to. I mean, I think these are very personal questions, but I think that there is a lot of emotional intimacy that feels more intimate than some of the physical acts that we would define as infidelity.
2: Okay. Uh, we, our time is up. Fascinating. It's really, uh, really, it, very interesting for me talking Thank to you, you so today, much. and I'm sure, I to, know, yeah, all my by. listeners. So I want to mention, obviously, I want to mention the book again. If you're in my office, it's already too late. A Divorce Lawyer's Guide to Staying Together. James Sexton. James websites we can go to to find out more about your book and, and you and what you're doing?
0: Sure, sure. A, a lot of information about my practice and, and also about the media work that I've done and some of the videos and uh, presentations are all at NYC, like New York City, NYC Divorces, D-I-V-O-R-C-E-S dot com. So NYC dot com or even uh, JJS, like James Joseph Sexton, E-S-Q dot com. So NYC Divorces dot com or JJS ESQ dot com. And the book's available everywhere, all the bookstores, Amazon, Audible is the audio book if you want to listen to me talk for eight and a half hours. Um, But uh, yes, I really appreciate you having me on. It was wonderful to chat with you.
2: Great talking to you. Um, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show.
1: The Internet's number one talk station. Number
0: one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. With Arvin Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788.
2: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Nina Lorenz Collins, author of What Would Virginia Woolf Do? and other questions I ask myself as I attempt to age without apology. Nina Collins, uh, her book grew out of a closed Facebook group called What Would Virginia Woolf Do? as an ironic nod to a brilliant and witty feminist who killed herself in her 50s. The joke was that she and her friends, smart, sophisticated, funny, feminist We're entering perimenopause and menopause and feeling somewhat demoralized. There are now 13,500 plus members all over the world and across a diverse range of economic and racial spheres who talk candidly about all things that women over 40 care about. Their bodies, their romantic lives, their kids, their careers, literature, politics. Uh, Nina is featured in The Guardian, Vogue, and The New York Times and many others. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Nina. All right. Tell us your book. Uh, all right. How did how did that get? You know, you had a it you had a closed Facebook page. First, that I want to know what that means. The closed Facebook page. You can tell everybody, but then as a result of that, you wrote this book. So how did yeah, all so this I started, come about?
1: I started a secret group, basically just for me and my girlfriends to talk about aging, and it was really just intended to be a kind of entertaining place to be kind of self-deprecating and honest about our bodies and the things that were happening to me and my friends as we got older. And the group just kind of took off. I started it as a secret Facebook group because Facebook was like the one social media that I was kind of comfortable with. I didn't do Instagram or Twitter or Snapchat or anything, but I liked Facebook. Um, And they have this, you know, secret group capability. So I made a group that no one could find unless you were invited. And my friends started inviting other friends. And within a few months, there were hundreds of us. and by the end of the first year, they were around, around around 1,500, and it was super kind of addictive and popular. We were finding ourselves having very candid, funny conversations, but kind of funny and also poignant and very real about, you know, everything from our bodies and sex with our partners and our relationships with our children and our relationships with our family and each other and, um, and also literature and culture and politics so it was basically taking up a ton of my time. This thing that I had started just for kind of kicks became kind of a full-time obsession. And I decided to, I come from the world of book publishing. I was a literary agent and a scout for many years. And so I thought, well, I'll try and write a book proposal. And if I can get a book deal, this will kind of, I can start writing about these subjects in greater detail. And it will also kind of, frankly, justify all the time I'm spending on <laughs> Facebook, um, And so I did. I wrote a book proposal, um, was fortunate enough to sell it, and then started writing the book and continued to manage the group. And the group is now um, around 20,000 women all over the world. It's become this really just fascinating place um, where women are really um, honest and able to kind of feel safe and really talk about the stuff that we don't talk about so much um, in the culture
2: yeah that, I'm, I'm fascinated with that because obviously if you have that many people that many women around the world who are who are doing this there's such a need for it there's such a need to discuss and I know these are you get into really very intimate topics I mean whether it's with kids or sex or uh, emotional stuff uh, every I guess all of the most intimate to- uh, topics that many of us feel uncomfortable talking yeah. about so let's be specific, what are they and how, how how helpful, how do you make it helpful for people and, uh, you know, people are sharing things that perhaps they wouldn't want anybody else to know about, uh, privacy issues, those kinds of things. Uh, yeah,
1: I mean, I think a big idea behind the group, it, 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 certainly in the book and my feelings about it is that... Um, a lot of the things we go through are very, very common. Probably everything we go through, in fact, is, is pretty common. There's not really a whole lot that you or I have experienced that hasn't been experienced, you know, millions of times before by other people. And so there's a lot of shame that we carry around. And, and so a lot of the idea is to dispel that shame. I was certainly, I did a master's in something called narrative medicine a bunch of years ago and was inspired by the work by, of Brene Brown. Um, yeah, she was on the show
2: with, a few years ago.
1: Oh, she's so amazing. She's she's so amazing. Her work on vulnerability and shame, Um, and also the idea—so kind of that idea—and also the idea that reflective writing, that writing about what we're going through, is you know can be used as a as a tool for healing. I mean, these are kind of the ideas that started the group in a way, so that by expressing what we're going through and sharing it and being able to be honest, we can um, make it easier for ourselves. Whether it's something as silly as kind of you know, feeling embarrassed about chin hair because you're a 50-year-old menopausal woman or whether it's um, something much more serious like dealing with your teenager who's um, seriously depressed and has to go to a wilderness program or you're dealing with your husband's um, erectile dysfunction or you're, you know, a 43-year-old woman and you find yourself in love with another mother in your kid's class or, you know, there are all these things that everyone around us is going through all the time and... As hard as they may be, they're not shameful. Um, so uh, so that's really kind of the idea, and I think in some ways because I, I grew up with a, lo- a lot of secrets in my childhood, and I think I have a real aversion to um, kind of caginess and feeling secrecy in general. So I'm pretty comfortable being open with the difficulties I've gone through in my life, and I think... Um, I think that kind of set the tone of the group. I mean, again, this wasn't started to be a thing. It was started to be kind of a personal space. And so I set this tone because that's what I wanted. And it kind of grew from there. So are you the
2: sort of, you, you're the mentor. I'm using the word mentor, but you're the person that they look to. You said, like, you've set the tone for this. So you're allowing woman, uh, women, there's this sort of a feel that it's okay to open up. It's okay to, to, to be connected, to be intimate, to talk about intimate uh, details Absolutely. of your life. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and we've really created a space. I mean, we kind of, you know, we joke and say the group is like Vegas. What happens in the group stays in the group. And it's been kind of miraculous how how well women pretty much adhere to it. I mean, we've had some breaches of privacy and confidentiality, and we, of course, say to everyone, particularly as we've grown so much, this is the Internet. Don't put anything on here that you wouldn't want to have on the Internet. Um, But that said, and we have an anonymous feature also, so women can write in anonymously with questions. Um, With that said, it's been kind of amazing how much genuine kind of um support and understanding there is respect for this being a space that's private like we we really don't like, if, sometimes people write in the comments oh i mentioned this to my partner or I, and we write to them and say that's not allowed like nothing that happens in the group is discussed outside of the group you know i can paraphrase or, you know discuss generally the ideas but we don't talk about what is going on for individual people obviously and that is pretty you know pretty well respected
2: well, in other words, so you're not going to say that, you know, Susie Smith said this about her husband ha-
1: no,
2: having an affair. Yet, okay, or you're not supposed to. But are you, you could, I mean, it would seem to me that would be helpful that that would be a jumping off point to be able to talk to a partner maybe about issues that you weren't able to talk to before because you've done it within the context of this group. Maybe not pinpointing. Yeah. yeah.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, one woman recently at a reading. um, So my book is basically my take on these issues. The book is not about the group, per se. It was inspired by the group, but the book is really my take on aging. So it's divided up into kind of obvious chapters, like the things we talk about in the group, our bodies, fashion, sex, depression, kids... Um, and at a recent book event, one woman spoke up. She was in her late 40s. So kind of the average age in the group is around 52, 54. Um, and this woman is in her late 40s, and she said that the, the group and then the book had made her realize she's married to a much younger man He's 30 or so. And she said that the whole experience had made her realize that there were a lot of things she was actually keeping from her husband because she was feeling ashamed and she didn't want to kind of highlight to him, you know, you're married to an older woman and I'm having these health issues or these emotional issues. So she was keeping things Secret from him, and the book particularly made her realize that you know she could talk about these issues and be funny about it and be real about it and share it with him, and it was okay. So that's an example where you know the experience has been taken, of course, into someone's personal life, and and that's great. And so I think for all of us, that's I mean I think the experience of the group has been life changing for a lot of women, really myself included, in that it's been so empowering to realize. Um, that we're not alone and and that it's okay, that all of this stuff is, is, uh, you know, surmountable and manageable.
2: I think one, and you just mentioned that the average age, or at least when women come into this group, is what you said, 52 or early 50s? It's
1: it's it's the early 50s. You know, basically I had kids when I was really young, um, and so most of my friends are in their 50s, and the average group is because it started really with my friend group. So, yeah, it's kind of 52, 54.
2: So that's really the age where you have this life cri- uh, I'm calling it a crisis but that's a, the uh, menopause postmenopausal or going through menopause or when it just begins to happen or the effects of menopause are are just beginning um,
1: yeah. yeah yeah
2: so and it's, it's hard.
1: I mean, I don't know how old yeah. you are, but, you know, there's a lot of um, stuff that goes on that is not really talked about in the culture, and doctors really don't talk about it. It's kind of, um, you have to find a specialist, typically, um, if you're lucky, if you live in a place where there are um, doctors who really specialize in hormone, hormone issues. But there's a lot of stuff that starts to happen to women at this age that, um, that we need help with, and it's not, it's not addressed very well in the, by the medical system.
2: Yeah, I, I think it's a big surprise. I know for me, I mean, I'm at the other end of the the baby boomers. I'm a baby boomer, and uh, I think all of that was a, a surprise. Menopause was a, a surprise in terms of what my mother or her friends or nobody talked about. Uh, yeah. I don't think you talked about You said too much. You didn't even mention it, uh, the word menopause. But, no. I mean, it's a lot of <laughs> And uh, I think all of those issues, I mean, I think it's such a great uh, – and the Facebook group, obviously, and your book, but it, it's so needed. And you wouldn't think that would be the case today with all the information that we have, because the information is out there. Just the intellectual information about all of this. But this intimacy that you've created among these women and helping them to uh be able to just express themselves and 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 not feel ashamed as you say or, or not feel that they're the only ones because we definitely are not unique with all of these issues yeah, that you talk no, about yeah
1: yeah, it really i mean on my tour, I met so many women who have told me how it's helped them not feel alone, and that's been really it's been amazing yeah um Uh, and I agree with you, it's just not, my mother died when she was 46, so I never had any models for that. I often find it interesting that I started the group when I was 46. I think I was kind of, um, you know, I didn't have anyone after 46 to kind of look at, and now I have this, huge group of women. And by the way, the women in the group range, so we have women in their 60s, we have women in their 70s, we love having older women in the group because their perspective is hugely valuable and inspiring for us, um. So there's a there's a big range, yeah. but you well, supposed I think to be over whole, forty to join.
2: Okay, well, you I, I think this whole postmenopausal thing and all of the issues that one has to deal with this whole issue of being invisible and I think besides sexism, I think ageism is really one of the the, the biggest areas of discrimination, particularly with Absolutely. women.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, it's huge. Yeah, it's, and in the group and in the book, we're kind of trying to look at it. It's it's in. Less probably from a kind of larger sociological standpoint of can we change this in the culture, but more how do we deal with it ourselves kind of internally? How do we feel about it? How do we manage it? Um, Those are the kind of things we're we're really looking at. I mean, God, I wish I could change. I wish I could eradicate ageism, but um, that's not something I'm taking on. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But it's more, you know, how do I live with it and feel about it?
2: What about you? I mean, I had read about you online, and one of the things, I guess, you've been through two divorces,
1: yeah, I've just gotten, I had my second divorce, sadly.
2: So, how was that in terms of, I assume that that was something that you were able to share w- w- with the group, and I don't know if it was a part of, of your book or not, but, um, because...
1: Yeah, it's um, yeah. it's not part of the book. I wrote the book when I was still married, and I delivered it last May, and then we split up in September, kind of slightly, kind of suddenly, Um, and, but I have shared it with the group and it's been a hard year. And, um, I mean, it's also been a wonderful year. You know, the the book has been really exciting and the group is amazing. And, um, but the, the, the ending of this, this was a short second marriage that I was super hopeful about. And, um, and it's been hard and I'm kind of, you know, I'll be 49 in August and I'm, I've got this kind of. Burgeoning business, it's super exciting, and my I have a fully empty nest. My I have four children, and my youngest four children all from my first marriage. And my youngest just graduated from high school, so I'm truly on my own for the first time in my life. And um, you know, uh, well, like I'll all give us you some so advice.
2: Like, they're they're going to come back. Don't worry about it. <laughs>
1: oh, I know they do come. <laughs> they do come in and out. That is you true. might Their have home a window. Yeah. Yeah, they're in and out for the summer for sure. I mean, I think one of the things I realize in the group that's actually super interesting that we talk about privilege in the group and people getting triggered by privilege. You know, some people talk about a fancy vacation or a, you know, and there's so many different ways in which we're privileged and disadvantaged. And I've had a hard time in my relationships with men and I'm super privileged in a lot of other ways. And, you know, we all have strengths and weaknesses and being able to kind of um, sit with the pain of those weaknesses and... Um, you know, it's just part of life. And I, I really see this in the group. I We use it, you know, there are some women in the group who talk about their great marriages or their great relationships with their fathers, for example. And those are two things I've never had. But then there are things that I have that other women look to me, you know, and envy. So uh, that's part of the the beauty of this group is being able to um, be honest about both sides of that. And, and you know...
2: Yeah, well, you said that your mother died when she was 46? Yep. And and you didn't have a great relationship with your father. Was he still, was he alive, or did
1: he... Yeah, my father's still alive. They divorced when I was very little, so I was raised by a single mom who was a um, black filmmaker artist, and, uh, and she got breast cancer when I was 11, although she kept it a secret, and she died... Um, when I was 19, and she, um, I didn't know she was sick until two weeks before she died, so that was kind of a huge shock. And I have a younger brother who I took care of um, after she died. And my father and I have just never been close. I'm the eldest. He's got six kids from three different wives. Weirdly, like my first husband also has six kids from three different wives. Um, and, uh, yeah, and we just have had, we've always had a strained relationship, and we kind of stopped speaking about eight years ago.
2: All right, so it's really you are the single mom with the, your four kids. In other words, it sounds like anyway, and, and no, yeah. and uh, yeah.
1: I mean, my kids do have a father, a loving father, which is great. So they have, they are they are better off than I was in that regard. So, but we are divorced, and yeah, I'm a single mom with four grown kids, um, and no, you know, no real no family. I have a I have a younger brother who I adore, um, and I had two grandmothers who um, helped you know, who were very much around when I was growing up, but they're both dead now. So no real family.
2: So I guess my next question is, I mean, you, this this is, it almost sounds like the group itself, um, I keep going back to the Facebook group, but it, it's a, um, it, does it get into therapy or do you, I mean, when people have problems that they're sharing Um, I know you're a life coach. Do you make recommendations for people for, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: Yeah, I would say it is fairly. I mean, look, we don't only talk about deep emotional issues, right? We talk about clothing and we talk about a lot of health issues and we talk about books and the culture and politics. But when it comes to the emotional issues, um, you know, women, the women in the group are very, very smart, I have to say. The, the kind of common denominator, there's, there's a very nice um, diversity um, ethnically and economically and geographically. But I would say the common denominator is a quite high level of intelligence. And we also curate the group. So we don't, we don't accept all posts um we, we want it to be kind of a, a, at a certain level of discourse and we have a lot of really really talented women in there so we've got doctors and therapists and writers and artists um so the level of advice women are getting is at a pretty high at a pretty high level and so yeah i would say there's a you know there's a therapeutic quality to some of the conversations well, oh so people who yeah. You know, weigh in, People weigh in when they have something to say. We, you know, we try and discourage just a lot of stupid ch- like chatter, basically.
2: So, what are what would you say are some of the the most difficulties you've had with the, with the group? I mean,
1: issues um, that you've had to
2: resolve. Or, yeah,
1: some, You know, sometimes people join who aren't a good fit. That certainly happens. You know, we we remove members. You know, probably. I don't know, maybe one or two a month, Especially now that it's bigger. And it just makes sense. I mean, you know, women hear about it and they're drawn to it, but it may not be a good fit. We are generally liberal politically. It's not a political group, so we welcome everyone. Um, but if you're like a really rabid, you know, Trump supporter or you're really, you know, a big NRA supporter, you're not likely going to feel comfortable in the group. If you're, you know, if you're anti-abortion, it's probably not the right place for you. So sometimes those issues come up. Um, and sometimes people are just mean the way people can be on the Internet. You know, we just sometimes get the wrong people who don't understand. Sometimes, actually, people will behave a little badly, and I'll say or a moderator will say to them, you know what, you're new. Why don't you sit back and kind of see how we roll a little bit before you chime in? And then those people end up being really great members. So sometimes it's just a matter of people kind of getting used to the tone, the tenor of the conversation. Um, but those are really the only, the only, I guess, the two problems that, you know, that the occasional kind of you know not good fit, and it's grown so much right now. We're kind of struggling. Um, you know, it's a very intimate space, and it's hard to scale intimacy. And so we're trying to figure out ways to manage that. We have regional groups. Um, we um, are actually just starting to play with the idea of a, a, some possible paid membership groups. Um, we have a website. We have a blog. We have a newsletter now. So, I'd say one of the challenges, you know, for the people who were in it very early on when it was such a special, tiny place, we're just dealing with size now. On the other hand, the, the beauty of that is we, you know, we see how we're, you know, helping and affecting, you know, massive numbers of women and that's really rewarding.
2: Yeah, you're definitely doing that. It sounds like the numbers are increasing daily. But uh, so, with a couple of minutes left, you mentioned several things. You mentioned the blog, a website, and your book, uh, What Would Virginia Woolf Do? and Other Questions I Ask Myself as I Attempt to Age Without Apology. And we're talking to Nina Larez Collins. Uh, can we have access to those? To, can you tell us how we can, if we want to? Read the blog. If you or want to join want to... the
1: group, absolutely. So the, the, the website and the newsletter is um, the blog is all at thewolfer dot That's what the women call themselves because they call themselves wolfers, which totally happened organically. It's so cute. So www and it's two O's, w o o l f e r dot And then if you're interested in joining the Facebook group, if you're a woman over forty and you think this sounds interesting for you, you just go to Facebook and look up what would Virginia Wolf do. You'll get prompted three questions. Um, are you a woman over forty? How did you hear about the group? Um, what are some recent books you've read? Um, and then you'll, you know, most likely be let in, and then you'll you'll find your way in our big wonderful Wolfer world.
2: <laughs> Thank you. Well, it was great having you on the show today. Uh, lots of good information, and I'm sure a lot of people are going to do just what you said: go to. Well, lovely to talk
1: to you. Yeah, great to talk to you.
2: Thank you, Nina. All right. um, Take care. I'm Kathy. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show.
0: We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinesox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.